It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne, a better way of seeing the life that you want to live. And welcome, or welcome back, I hope. In this episode, we're going to talk about something I feel very strongly about. You know, back in my years as a professor, one of my favorite courses that I developed from scratch and taught was on mental health and illness. And we always got really great discussions out of it, and it opened a lot of eyes. And these were students who'd already had a few years of training in the field. And there is so much more going on here than we think. So today, I want us to really dive into what is mental illness and and talk about why we have so many problems understanding and accepting and and supporting mental illness individually and as a society. You know, I'm deeply interested in this because mental illnesses are often chronic, so they last months or years, and if they go away, they often reoccur. And they're often a natural reaction to life with a chronic physical illness as well. Because living with a chronic physical illness is lasting and repeated trauma. So for some of the related issues that we're not going to get into in this episode, I will direct you to an episode a couple of weeks ago on invisible illness. That's episode 221, titled You Don't Look Sick. But up front, I want to emphasize mental illnesses are just as real just as serious, and just as potentially life-threatening as physical illnesses. There's also not a clear line between them. Mental, emotional, and behavioral changes are also part of many physical illnesses. You know, like my MS. And this is especially true as those illnesses persist for months and years and decades. And just as true, mental illnesses often have accompanying physical and biomedical effects, too. So, right off the bat, the boundary between these is really fuzzy and kind of artificial. Today... I want us to talk about why we have so many problems with the idea of mental illness. Mental illnesses are health conditions involving dysfunctional or harmful changes in thoughts, feelings, or behaviors. Mental illnesses are associated with distress or problems functioning in social work or family activities or life activities, mental health conditions are rarely the result of one event and usually have multiple conditional causes. Those causes include lifestyle and environmental factors. They include experiences or lack of resources. It's not just conditions about you, but it's conditions about your environment that can manifest in you as well. And also, in some cases, there are biochemical, there are genetic, there are brain processes or brain circuitry or structure that 
may also be a factor. A mental illness fundamentally does not mean you're somehow at fault. That's, that's one of those weird distinctions that we tend to make, and we'll talk about why this is the case. But you don't tend to get upset that your broken arm is your fault. But often we do tend to get upset that our anxiety or our depression or our disordered personality or whatever it is is somehow our fault. Well, that's just not true. So recovering and healing with mental illness are possible, even very likely if we look at the data, and especially with early treatment social support, and your own strong engagement. With mental illnesses, you really need to be involved. And sometimes that's really difficult to do because we don't want to face it. Our culture doesn't want to acknowledge it. And so many of us have to go through a lot of stages before we get to that point and before those people around us can get to the point where they can be supportive in a good way. So mental illnesses are really common. No matter how we slice it, if we look at data from the National Institute of Mental Health, okay, so NIMH, NIM, you know, it's where those really smart rats are from. You know, that book was uh, pretty new when I was a kid, and I love that book. So, uh, looking at 2019 data here from NIMH, overall, within one year, 20.6% of our adult population in the United States had any form of mental illness. So, one in five, one year, and that's a typical year. Of that one in five adult Americans who had any mental illness diagnosis in 2019, Only 44.8% of them sought medical health services, so less than half. In the same year, 5.2% of us had what's considered a serious mental health diagnosis. And of them, about 65.5% got medical attention. Among adolescents... 49.5%. Most mental illnesses present by the time someone's 14. And about 75% of the mental illnesses present for the first time by the time you're in your mid-20s. So there are a lot of mental illnesses out there. It's really, really common. And on top of all of this, 8.5% of us have a diagnosable substance use disorder. That means they're self-medicating. And that works just about as well as you trying to set your own cast on your broken arm. Over our lifetimes, half of us will experience a diagnosable mental health issue. But for many reasons, for many, many reasons, the numbers I've just given you are in all likelihood low and incomplete, and many people will never get diagnosed. They will never seek help. They will just try to grunt through it 
and deny that it's an issue. But mental illnesses are treatable. The vast majority of individuals with mental illnesses continue to function at some level in their daily lives. And that's really important because just like with physical illnesses, most of us tend to keep going. With mental illnesses, we're doing the same. And yet, why on earth would we want ourselves or the people we love to have to continue in the face of all of that dysfunction without help or support? We all want a better quality of life, right? And, and if your quality of life improves, my life improves too. This is not a zero-sum game. It's not an either-or. We are all in this together. So I want you to think about just how common this is. And after the break, we will look at why we have so many problems individually and as a culture with even accepting the idea of mental illness. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And I'm puzzling here about all of our problems accepting mental illness. And there are a few reasons, I think, why, as individuals and as a society, that we have this kind of difficulty. And this is not something that is endemic only to people from the United States. This is something that we see everywhere. Mental illness is problematic. And one of those reasons why is because mental illness has always been problematic. And it's got a history of being problematic. So if we know anything about it, we wonder. We, we, we have those issues. So, like, one of the things that we used to do that we don't do so much now is we used to put people with serious mental illnesses, and who those people were varied from time to time and place to place, in asylums, sometimes called lunatic asylums. Asylums are really old, they go back all the way to the 5th century in the Middle East. England's infamous Bethlehem Royal Hospital, better known as Bedlam, whose, whose name has passed into our language for just riotous, out-of-control shenanigans, was opened in 1337. In the United States, the first asylum opened in New York 200 years ago. It was Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum. Again, that phrase. And then in the 19th century, we see an explosion 
of these sorts of facilities happening all over the place. And, and we all know those stereotypes of the Victorian-era lunatic asylum, right? And in our popular minds, that's probably the strongest association most people have, uh, you know, from Dickensian stories and, and things like that. There was, in reality, a lot of good, healthy motivation behind this when it started. There was something in the 19th century called the moral treatment movement, and it was about trying to develop idyllic, almost pastoral facilities for these people. Unfortunately, they soon, and in the United States this happened in the aftermath of the Civil War, with all of what we now know as PTSD and, and so forth, those facilities, which were maybe designed to house maybe 200, 250 people at a shot, were soon packed beyond any reason. And you'd have 10 times as many people packed into the facility than they were designed for. So they were overcrowded, they were overrun, they were under-resourced, they were unregulated. And so, yeah, they're out in the country, many of them, and there's no regulation, there's no oversight, and in some cases, some really sketchy things happened. So by the time you get to the mid-20th century, they are all definitely overrun, under-resourced, unregulated, and people are talking about it. Because everybody knew somebody. I mean, you know, at this time, like 10% of the population had at one time or another been housed in an asylum. And so everybody knew someone who was in one or had been in one. So this continues through the mid-20th century, and by the 1970s, another well-intentioned trend started called mainstreaming. You know, the idea is that, well, people with mental illnesses are people too, and, and they get they should get to be in society with other people as well. Unfortunately, it was, again, a policy that was under-resourced and understaffed, and we were given a goal and no way to get there. And so what has happened in the intervening 40 or 50 years now, most of the people who would have been in that sort of long-term care facility are in our prison and parole system, or they are unhoused and unsupported. And what we see here is a massive class difference in who gets what kind of care. So if you're well-to-do, then you can afford to stay at one of those country club facilities. And... People in the middle class generally are struggling along with support from friends and family and maybe a little institutional support. And people from the working class and the underclass are in prison or parole or unhoused or something. And it's really awful. So we know now that we also have a problem with these, you know, with this population, but we don't yet have a good solution for what's going to go on here. There's another reason why the history of mental illness that we all know and understand is kind of sketchy, and that's because there's a really sketchy history of psychiatric treatments and clinical psychology. 
Let's face it, things like lobotomies and other psychosurgeries, the use of restraints and isolation and ice baths. From the 1930s to the 1960s, they used to put people in insulin comas to try to reset their brains. They would try to induce seizures to reset brains. And this started with metrazole therapy and then the first generation of electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, which has now been greatly improved and it's a pretty good treatment that is not scary in the ways that it used to be for certain kinds of mental illnesses. But we still think of the scene of Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. When we think ECT, that's what we see. And these aren't even some of the most wacky treatments that were out there, but there was a really sketchy history of the treatments that were involved. There's also a really sketchy history of the diagnoses that were preferred. For over a century, there was a diagnosis of hysteria, which, of course, was only applied to women. And believe it or not, at the beginning, the thought was that y'all had some wild uteruses. And your uterus could wander around your body. If it was out of the right position, then you would act squarely. In the mid-19th century, in the United States, in the South, they actually had a diagnosis called drapetomania. And drapetomania was the insanity that was driving African-American slaves to try to gain their freedom, to escape from the plantation. Yeah, right. Up through the DSM-3, homosexuality was a diagnosable mental condition. Now, do you see a bit of commonality in all of these examples, and there are many more that we could use? These are all groups in society that were somehow disadvantaged and these are all diagnoses that are used trying to put people, quote-unquote, in their place when they're looking for more autonomy and agency and equality. So yeah, there is a sketchy history of psychiatric diagnoses being used to wield and enforce power within a society. And then we get to the DSM, and the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, and this is what we use to give our diagnoses. And in the last 70 years or so that the DSM has been around, there have been seven different versions of the DSM, and the DSM-4 came out early in my graduate school years, we had the DSM-4-TR, and now, for the last almost decade, the DSM-5. Now, here's something curious about this. When the first DSM came out, there were 102 different psychiatric diagnoses. With the DSM-2, they added another 80 diagnoses. By the time you get to the DSM-4-TR, which was in 2000 when that came out, there were 365 different psychiatric diagnoses. But then, all of a sudden, 13 years later, when the DSM-5 came around, we were back down to 157 diagnoses. So, 
200 of those diagnoses just disappeared. Now, people look at this, and, you know, there were some good reasons for this and everything, and we, we could go off on a tangent here, but I'm not. But that causes people to question what's going on with a mental health diagnosis. The other thing that we have to keep in mind here with this is that mental illness diagnoses are symptom-based, not causal. So in other words, we're looking at a constellations of behaviors and feelings and that sort of thing, and if they occur together, they're given a name that is the diagnosis. And if you compare the diagnostic criteria, many, 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 many of those symptoms are shared across many different diagnoses. You can go to one psychiatrist and present slightly different and get a different diagnosis. So there's, it's hard to get validity and reliability. Now, what I want to emphasize here is that the underlying illnesses are absolutely just as real as any other illness. But the diagnostic criteria, the way we have intellectually carved it up, that's what's problematic here. So don't confuse the two. And the difficulty is that when we're trying to understand the cause of mental illness, they usually have multiple and conditional causes. How do we treat mental illness? Well, again, there are lots of different ways, and many of the ways that we treat mental illness are not as effective as we would like them to be. So many psychoactive drugs are no better or little better than placebo in clinical trials. Just know that the treatments are also problematic. And also, one of those dirty little secrets, and, and I will share it here with you, is that for now, no one knows why any psychiatric treatment works. We do not have a deep understanding of the why and the how. We just know that sometimes it really does work with someone. You know, for, for a certain kind of condition, you can strap them in and give them ECT for another talk therapy, for another, you know, et cetera, right? And, but we just don't know. And we know that they work for some people. We also know very little about how brain function relates to mental experience. It's still largely a black box. And we've got really exciting new imaging techniques that is for the first time in maybe the last decade or so, allowing us to compare mental experience to the underlying brain. And that's really cool. As we head into this break, just know that mental illnesses are absolutely real and absolutely have profound effects. And we often reach our understanding of illness through metaphors. So after the break, let's consider some better metaphors for understanding chronic illness. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step 
at justjump.life. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And like the psychiatric and the clinical, psychological, and therapeutic professions, we're having a difficult time defining mental illness. And that's because most of the symptoms of recognized mental illnesses exist on a continuum from mostly functional through what we might call life problems to seriously dysfunctional on on the other end. But this isn't so different from many physical illnesses. We understand with physical illnesses that we have degrees of problems and that they require different levels and different types of support. And and sometimes we understand that, oh, if we have, say, a bum knee, then we might just go ahead and limp through things, even though we know that if we got a little more care for it, we might solve that problem and, and not have to live with a limp. Well, we do that with our cognition and our emotion and our behaviors as well. Sometimes we understand that we're not being real functional with that emotion or that reaction or that behavior. And we kind of shrug it off and say, "Mm, okay, I'll live with it. But that has profound consequences. And a lot of those consequences add up over the years. So now, if you get injured and a limb is pointing in the wrong direction, then everyone can look around at at that and say, gee, I'll bet that hurts. You should probably get some medical care. But that's a lot more difficult with a mental health issue because people can't see a clear indicator because it is largely invisible, and because, you know, again, I'll refer refer you back to that other episode, and because there are many possible reasons. Maybe you have issues with anger, for example. Now, is that trauma that you are expressing a reaction to, or are you just a jerk? Okay, it's hard to tell just from the one. While it's more easy to do that differential diagnosis on uh, a physical ailment, and again, sometimes it's, it's really difficult to do a differential diagnosis. Take autoimmune conditions. And it, it sometimes takes people years to get the right diagnosis because some of the symptoms are really subtle. And it takes a lot of medical testing and a lot of times to get all the data that you need. So one behavior can look like one thing and have many different causes. By the way, philosophers call this the supervenience problem. Beyond all that, health, whether you are healthy or not, is always a value judgment. There's no objective standard for once you pass this point, you are suddenly unhealthy. It doesn't work like that. We are always, as an individual, being compared to, here my air quote fingers, normal standards. But how deviant does one have to be in order to be sick? And when it comes right down to it, most of us are not as physically fit as we would like to be anyway. And exceptionally fit people are just that, exceptional. 
Is it any wonder that most of us are not as mentally fit as we would like to be? That's pretty exceptionally rare, too. Historically, we have made many different decisions about what is normal and what is not. It just changes. It changes over time. And we've made different decisions about what constitutes a deviation and how we treat those deviations. So normal, or mythical normal, is a blend of apparently common and culturally idealized traits supported by a dominant power in a society. It's always developing in response to social pressures and to practical demands. So let's take a for instance here. Close your eyes and in your mind picture a healthy body. Take a minute. What are the characteristics? Now, does your conception of a normal, healthy body look more like a typical person you would see on the street or like a fit athlete? Most of you are probably picturing a normal person, a normal, healthy person, as looking somewhere closer to that fit athlete. Well, how often do you run across one of those day in and day out? Not very often. Why would you think we would be any more accurate picturing what mental health should look like? We've got this ideal that's, that's, that's this amalgam of those common traits, and, th and that means common to your experience. And because all of our experiences are biased, we hang around with certain kinds of people and we do certain kinds of things, we all have a different idea of normal. And we also have a slightly different view of that culturally idealized portion of it as well. And that changes. You know, a, a culturally beautiful woman from, say, 1970 looked very different than, say, from 60 years before. In 1970, she looked like Twiggy. 70 years before that, she looked like a Ziegfeld girl. And she was much more Zoptic, right? And so we, we see how these ideas of health and fitness and attractiveness and desirability and all of that changes over time. And that changes in how we think about bodies. But it also changes in how we think about minds as well. There are things that, that we consider completely normal and healthy now, mentally, emotionally, behaviorally, that we wouldn't have decades in the past and that we won't decades in the future. So understand that the standard you're comparing to when you're thinking about mental health and illness is a little warped, and it's flexible, and it is changeable. Because normal changes, what is deviant changes as well. And in society, we have always had challenges figuring out what to do with people who are different. And do we classify those people as sick or evil? or sinners, or, you know, are they criminals? Whatever it is you want. I mean, we've got all these systems that, that help us deal with, what are they, right? Well, different societies have taken the very same 
differences, the very same deviations, and classified them differently. And we know that we, in our own society. We've talked about it before with sexuality. Uh, you know, we've had sexualities that have been criminalized in the past, that have been deviantized as mentally ill in the past, that have been deviantized as sin in the past. And most of society, but not all of society, I mean, there are segments of society that are still holding on to each of those ideas, but the mainstream of society is different in their assessment now. I used to do this challenge. One of the classes that I taught for like 15 years was social deviance, and I would give a challenge to my students when they came in. I said, there's only one way you can get extra credit in this class, and that is if you can come up with a behavior that for all times, in all social groups, in all circumstances, would be considered deviant. And oh, I can tell you they tried. They tried and tried, and evidently I had some pretty twisted students, but they really tried. And you know what? No one ever claimed the extra credit. Because no matter their examples, I was able to point them to some group at some time in some place under some circumstance that considered that thing completely normal. So my point here is, when we're considering mental health and illness, we've got a lot of challenges with the standard that we're comparing to. Normal is problematic. Normal is difficult because normal is a feature of every society. Every society has its normal, and it's enforced because we have a primal desire to belong. We like to belong. And that includes setting group boundaries. So we can't have an us if we don't have a them. And all societies want to draw those boundaries someplace. As a society, if we have strong norms enforcing what is normal and what is not, then that's a powerful technique for social control as well. By thinking about people with mental illness as other and not as us, then we're denying a fundamental aspect of humanity. And we're denying, in many cases, ourselves and people that we love. And this introduces all sorts of problems that all of us have to live with. We need a better metaphor for living with mental illness. And after this break, I'm going to give you what I think is a better metaphor and we're going to have some practical takeaways about how we can improve our approach to mental illness. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. JustJump.life It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Well, we've barely scratched the surface of a gigantic can of worms here. <laughs> 
Mental illness is a massive issue, and it's become a bigger issue than it needs to be, largely because we've avoided dealing with it in a humane, systematic manner. If we think of mental illness as disease, primarily, then we're probably going to stay stuck in this rut. Now, sometimes there is, in the technical sense, a disease or pathological issue that's going on. But with most of the most common mental health issues that we're dealing with, it may be more helpful, more enlightening, for us not to think so much in terms of disease, but injury. We all know what happens if we get a traumatic physical injury. A body gets bruised, perhaps broken. It tries to knit itself together. It needs help to knit itself together into a functional form. If you don't get the help knitting back together, then it may not heal in the most functional way, right? How about repetitive stress injuries, where we keep doing the same kind of motion over and over again. And because that motion is not quite optimal, we get a strain. And over time, it becomes painful. Now, what happens if we thought about most mental illnesses in terms of traumatic or repetitive stress injuries? If we have traumatic, emotional, or cognitive, or cultural, or moral experiences, why shouldn't our minds and our identities, and our sense of worth be injured just like our bodies would be? Why shouldn't they be just as in need of treatment? If, like tennis elbow or carpal tunnel syndrome, because we're doing an ordinary activity in not quite the most healthy way for ourselves, why shouldn't we think that we might get injured over time? And all of these things aren't our fault. Those are just the natural wear and tear of experiencing and living. What if we thought about more mental health issues like that? That sometimes we're going to get injured because life is rough, because life is wearing, because life is exhausting. And just like our physical bodies can get injured or wear down, our psyches can as well. So I would encourage you more often to pull out the injury metaphor to help understand what's going on with many mental health conditions. It really is that simple, and it really is that common. And if you apply that lens, suddenly what you need to do becomes so much more clear, doesn't it? So what else can we do besides using a better metaphor to improve what we're doing with mental illness? Well, next, reduce the stigma. Okay. And, and we've talked about why this stigma is a natural byproduct of the culture and the history and all of that. But we can change. It takes enough of us to say no. That is an entirely natural human thing. And it deserves a humane, supportive response 
from the rest of us. Reducing stigma begins with individual choices. So I challenge you to own up to mental health issues in your own life, to be more honest when you can, and to be more supportive when other people open themselves honestly about their mental health challenges. Here's another thing we can do, which I think would be a really cool idea. So with physical health, there are a couple of things that we teach from the time we're really young. We teach people physical hygiene and first aid. Now, I challenge us to teach mental health hygiene and mental first aid. If we had an early, supportive, helpful response to many of these mental health injuries, they wouldn't get so bad. We need to integrate mental health support and training into existing life. Beyond teaching mental health hygiene and first aid, you know, there are a lot of really innovative programs that are going on in this area, and I'll just give you one example. There's a really cool program that is right now teaching barbers in African-American communities about mental health. Why? Because the barbershop for men in African-American communities is a central hub for their social existence for many of them. Those barbers are already the recipients of the trust in the community they are already acting often as informal counselors. So this program is going in and and training them and giving them a little more science-based, research-backed, practically tested information that they can use to do what they're already doing better. And it's making them aware of whenever they have someone sitting in their chair who has a more serious life issue going on, they're making them aware of how to hand them off to the most effective places in a system that can provide what those men actually need. Now, how cool is that? What if we went through and just took a look at all of the social roles in our society where people are informally placed into the role of confessor and support and agony aunt and all of these things, and just gave them a little better tools. How amazing would that be? So we have all of these existing folk support systems, and that's a technical term for it. It's a a folk system that just need to be better trained and integrated and acknowledged. And, And they're already doing this work. Let them do it better. And that helps everyone. Another thing we need to do is we need to band together to improve mental health treatment coverage. I can jump up and down and scream on a soapbox about this for days on end. And it's not the only thing. Think about this for a second. Why on earth do eyeballs, teeth, and mental health need separate treatment coverage? You ever think about that? you got these three things going on in your head. You've got, you've got your teeth, your eyes, and your brain. And normal insurance in the United States does nothing or almost nothing to cover them. And it doesn't help anyone but the insurance companies. 
and anybody who is going to get in my face and defend why it should be that way, I will take you any day of the week because there is no reason. And yet, so many of us defend those policies against our own demonstrable best interests. So stop it. The world can be different. The world can be better. It requires enough of us to stand up together and demand it. Another thing we need is more research and better systematic clinical studies because it's still understudied. We still, as I said before, we don't understand the how or the why of any of the treatments. And there are lots and lots and lots of great researchers that are tackling these issues right now. And we need more of them and we need more support because these are crucial bits of knowledge we need to uncover to improve quality of life. We need better diagnostic criteria. The DSM-5, for a lot of reasons, and some of the policies that came along with that were regarding research and, and clinical data, are actually steps in the right direction, and those are really important. So we're, we're making a little progress, but, but, you know, we still have a long way to go. And finally, once again, how do we improve our approach to mental illness? I'm going to repeat it, reduce the stigma. And that begins, I think, with that better metaphor. So if you live with a mental health condition, keep powering through it. Get the help that you need. I'm right there with you. And I hope that all of us can work for a more honest and open and supportive world that accepts that this is a natural consequence of getting bruised and battered by a life that is sometimes not that easy. And on that note, go forth, be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, Find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co.